Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. FixTheNation.com by John A. Jensen one more time. All righty. We are just moving on down the highway with this whole Trump transition thing going on. Um, so far, no great surprises. Um, I will say this. If you optically look at the, I want to say it's five that have been announced formally so far, you know, right now it is all white males, you know, all conservative, and I don't think that paints a very good picture. I don't think it'll end up that way, but we will cautiously approach this and see and monitor that situation. Um, so far, I like the choices he's made from a qualification standpoint. I think he's putting bright minds and experience around him. I don't think he's picked overwhelmingly um, people that have. Um, he's not regurgitating the same talent, so I think that's a good step. Um, but but it's but it's early yet. A lot of work to do. Thousands of appointments to do. I think I heard that something like ten thousand appointments he has to do. Not he personally, but you know that comes with the position and the hierarchy that are under underneath him. So that's that, that's a lot of that's a lot of bodies. That's a lot of talent. And it can be a whole bunch of talent, or it can be a real shallow pool of talent. A couple ways to play it. Bodies versus, you know, qualifications. Um, so far, I think he's looking at the qualification pieces. Um, I will say this. It is very entertaining to uh, not monitor, but, but keep track of or keep updates on who comes and goes from his world. You know, who's being talked to? Because it's all over the map. You have people from the left and people from the right. You have moderates. You have people who hate him, people who love him. You have people who are close to him, people that haven't talked to him yet. Um, it's a very interesting collection. Um, but then again, that's, I think, part of, part of his appeal. He's not narrow-minded. He's very willing to consider people for positions that other people wouldn't because he's very comfortable in his own skin. He doesn't have to be head and shoulders with everybody else, and their incompetence makes him stronger. One of the, one of the I'll call it the symbols of a great leader, is they surround themselves with the best and the brightest talent humanly possible. One, it makes their job incredibly easy. But number two, it also allows them to get stronger themselves because when you have a conversation, it's not a yes guy. It's not a lay down, anything you want, boss. No, there's a true dialogue. Picture people in that room that have diametrically opposed views. Just going at it in a war room, going at it in a cabinet meeting, going at it, you know, philosophically slash in a reality sense on how to approach things. And then he has to make the ultimate decision. But think about that wonderful interaction that he'd be a part of. At the end of the day, you come out of that room and you have policy or you have an idea or you have a direction. Decisions get made. But they don't get made in a vacuum away from 
a dialogue or a process. And see, that's what's been missing in the last uh, about eight years. Ideologues don't have a discussion about ideas or process. They just know what they want and shove. It's not healthy. There's no, there's nothing that grows from that. Nothing. You can't get what's best for America by imposing an act. Because most of the country won't think positive about it. Because they don't understand it, want it, they haven't bought into it, they weren't even part of it. If you have a true national dialogue, if you have a true forum, if you let the public disseminate, good things happen. Always. True always in in policy. Um, Tonight, I'm going to talk about uh, two things um, beyond the first 100 days thing. We're going to get into tax reform and a couple tweaks I would make and why, and then to foreign policy and some focus points around the world. And we're going to do it for a couple, very really, kind of inside, outside the country. This is, these are things that will be addressed probably in the first 100 days. These are things that will be critical to the, the overall overarching success for him. Um, you know, I could say economy is the broader thing, but the, one of the biggest things that he can do is to revitalize growth in this country. Um, it's been decimated for eight years, and part of that is outside President Obama's control in the Great Recession, but a lot of it's in his control. He burdened us with Obamacare. He burdened us with regulations. He burdened us uh, with slow-growth policies. It's just That's a statement of fact. It's, it's what he believes in. He wants government to be bigger. He doesn't really care about the private sector because what's the point of that? You know, they're supposed to feed the government more money so the government can dole out, you know, rations to the people. That's that's what big, 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 huge, big government does. Unhealthy, un-American, but that's the point of view of, you know, the current slash former president. Okay, that being said, let's go to the first 100 days real quick. I'm going to say economy is going to take the lead. And economy is going to be made up of a few different pieces. One is rolling back some regulation in general. Two is, I'm not sure how they're going to play this one, whether they're going to do a repeal-replace on Obamacare, if they're just going to slice up Obamacare a little bit and replace certain pieces of it, um, if they're going to make that a, a priority out of the gate, or if that's going to be something that they will address you know, more toward the end of the 100 days and start a process on. Um, Because one of the things that America is waiting for is, well, what does this whole replace thing mean? What shape will that take? Because we all need, quote-unquote, health insurance. We all want, quote-unquote, health insurance. We all want to, you know, have the benefits of it. But if you're going to say Obamacare is horrible, we're going to repeal and replace it, the obvious question is, well, replace with what? And that's, we're kind of waiting on that. What form that will take? And then how do you implement it without having a gap? We're going to end Obamacare on December 31st of 2017, 
So on January 1st of 2018, XYZ plan starts. Well, can all the, whatever it is, pieces be put in line in time? Do you put Obamacare on a pause mode of you end when this starts? Of course, then again, you have a lot of things that are out there in the system, the general government marketplaces, all the plans have been designed specifically for that, um, plans that will be unwound and re-implemented in a different way if they're repealed and replaced. Ah, got nothing. So we will see where that takes us. But you can deregulate a lot of things. You can start to negotiate trade deals. I don't think those are instantaneous acts. I think you can start the negotiation piece. You can announce that, you know, we'll be talking to Canada and Mexico about NAFTA. You can announce that. But that will be a split second, hey, we're going to talk for two hours and, and we're done. Here we go. It's not going to be that way. It's going to be months, maybe even year, before that kind of gets realized. He might want to move faster, and he might say, well, if you're not going to move faster, then we're just going to cut ties. He, he can do a lot of different things. He has that ability just to tear it up if he wants to. But force their hand to say, today the split second, sign it, let's go. He can't do that because you do have to negotiate in good faith. So we'll see where that takes us. So one of the things that he's going to do, besides regulations, will be tax reform. And that's something, one, it's already been designed – Kevin Brady with the House Ways and uh, Means Committee, Chairman, has uh, this wonderful plan, and I've read it. It's just – it's really well done. I give him a lot of credit – or them, I should say, a lot of credit. Um, and Speaker Ryan, to be quite honest. Um, it's not a perfect plan, but it's really well done. And again, remember where I'm, I'm coming – I'm the man coming out of the desert. I'm the guy who hasn't had tax reform in 30 years that wanted tax reform for 30 years, and now finally I'm getting a glass of tax reform water. Ah, oh, it tastes good no matter if it's room temperature, ice cold, boiling hot. doesn't matter. It's water. Man coming out of the desert? Sounds pretty good to me. But I will say this. There are certain tweaks that I would like them to consider. Yes, I've sent this information off to them, and we'll see how that plays out. A um, couple things. One, let's just, just kind of discuss the general premise. You know, I'm not going to go into wonky, crazy land detail about it, but there are some big bullet points about this. One, simplification in general. One of the overwhelming things that he'd like to do is do your taxes on the size of a postcard. Keep the form that simple. Two, reduce and simplify the, was it 80,000 pages of tax code to make it much, much leaner, much, much simpler, a lot less costlier, and much more palatable, understandable to things like small, medium-sized businesses that have to hire accounts and lawyers that they really can't pay for, let alone the average Joe American. Uh, three, corporate tax reform. Now, the personal rates, instead of having, I want to say, seven different rates, be knocked down to three. And, and his – I don't like his numbers. Um, he uses the lowest rate at 12%. Middle class would be 25%. And 
and the highest tier would be 33%. Um, I get it. Um, I, I'm a middle class fan. I think the middle class has the one that's just been taking it in the chops for decades. I think we need the most relief. If you're Richie Rich, it really doesn't matter if it's a 2 or 3% swing. If you're in the lowest group, no offense to anybody that, that, that makes that, you get a lot of government benefits to begin with, and you get mostly you get all of your money back anyway. And I don't mean that to, to belittle or think it, it, it's a tough life. Less is not more in that case. Less is less. That is not lost on me. But if you're the middle class, I think there is, there's a certain give back you could do right now. It would kind of realign certain things. We need enough money to put our kids through college, to, 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 to pay for the car and the house, you know, to not stress that we're not going to have money to live next month. Put a little something away for retirement. Just build for a better day. Build for the next generation if need be. Make life fun again. So my numbers, instead of, well, his numbers were 12, 25, 33. My numbers, 24, 36. So the middle class plays 1% less. Upper crust pays 3% more. And I don't think that's a big deal because, again, they have all the accounts and lawyers on the planet. A lot of them have their trusts, you know, and foundations anyway that allow them to get out from under. So for the most part, no harm, no foul. That being said, that's not the only difference I would make. So we're going to go through a little bit of this. Um, corporate rate, ballpark right now is around 35%, one of the highest in the world, and they'd whack that down to 15% outright, which would be one of the lowest in the world, which would be wonderful. But I have concerns, and I'm going to approach that from a, from a different angle. If you've been awake for the last eight years, we went through eight years, approximately, uh, what's called easy money, meaning the Federal Reserve has the rates so incredibly, insanely low. They're in crisis mode still, even though we're in sixth year of recovery. They are still in crisis level rates. They're terrified to raise rates because they've been the only game in town Okay, they've used monetary po uh, policy to stimulate the economy. They have spent trillions from the Fed level of what's called quantitative easing. Trillions to stimulate the economy and push this slumbering little thing along at a snail's pace. So I set the context like that for a very specific reason. If you're going to knock it down from 35 down to 15, I have a fear. And it, and it kind of comes from all this cheap money that's been used in the last six years. Ask yourself a simple question. Have big corporations used all this cheap money to build plant equipment, um, hire more, to build out, to expand, to... No, you know what they did with the cheap money? They kept buying back stock. They kept financial engineering. They kept making more money to buy more stock 
to reduce the outstanding shares and create more wealth for the wealthy who are the stock owners. They didn't create jobs. You actually have companies that have laid people off while they use cheap money to financially engineer their own wealth. Now, one, that offends me. But they're playing by the rules, so you can't really fault them. So we're going to segue and go back to tax reform. Why I bring that little story up is my version on corporate tax reform is slightly different. In corporate, you would have, and again, I would tier this. So if you have small businesses or if you had any manufacturing company, okay, or a small service sector corporation, you would end up paying 18%, but I would give you an extra 1% reduction on your taxes if you met some standards. This is 1% for each of these three. If your capital expenditures were more than the prior three-year average in your company, I'd give you an extra 1% off your taxes. If your marketing expense was more than the prior three-year average for your company, I'd give you an extra percent off. And if you had health care, provided health care for your employees, and a pension or 401k that was more than 80% funded, by the way, I'd give you an extra 1% off your taxes. So you, in fact, would have a 15% rate. But this is what I've done. I've given you an incentive in the tax code that's very simple that says spend money on your plant and equipment, get a benefit. Spend some on marketing to build your sales, get a benefit. Spend some money on health care and 401k provisions for your full-time employees, and there you go, 1% more. It's a win for everybody, right? The company wins in lower taxes. We win by having the right things offered to us on a more broad scale. What about big companies? Okay, here it gets interesting. The heavy hitters are a 25% rate, but they have five kickers, five different things that get 2% each of these, an additional reduction. So if you are U.S. headquarter-based, defined as the main office, and most full-time employees for your company are in the U.S., you get an extra 2%. If more of your net U.S. full-time employees is higher than the three-year average of your company, you get an extra 2%. So if you keep hiring more full-time workers, you keep getting a benefit. Capital expenditure. Again, if you beat your three-year average, you get 2% extra. Knocked off your taxes. Marketing expense more than three-year average, again, 2% extra. And if you provide health care and a pension or 401k that's more than 80% funded, another 2% off. So if you're a big corporation, you too can get 15%. But I want certain assurances incentivized in the plan that says, if we give you this free money, you will in turn do good things by the people of America with it doesn't mean you can't have it. It does mean there has to be a little bit of investment on your part to get it. I just don't trust corporations to do what's right by the people of America blindly. Some would. But right now, we need a little bit of healing in America, meaning we need to jumpstart an economy, but we also need to jumpstart some job creation. 
and jumpstart some U.S.-founded job creation. It's not enough to say, I'm going to build a plant in Mexico or Germany or China. That's great for them, but it doesn't help us here. It might help us by getting cheap goods back here, but it doesn't help jobs here. I would do other things along the tax code, by the way. The repatriation tax, you know, there's $2.5 trillion overseas. Beautiful. Give it a one-time repatriation tax of 15%, but dedicated, literally dedicated to inner-city poverty reform. Estate tax. I'd like to eliminate it, but mandate the 10% cross the board over a million dollars, whack, 10%, and it goes right to paying off the debt. I'd tweak the capital gains tax so that all capital gains are taxed at your rate of where you are, lower, middle, or higher income. You get taxed at that rate. I don't think that capital gains for someone in middle class should be taxed the same as someone who's middle class and makes $2 million a year. I don't think that's, that's an equal standard. Money has a different value to people in different classes. I would put an immigration tax. Anyone who's a non-citizen should pay a 5% income tax until they become a citizen. We have 11 million people in this, in this country, I believe, right now, which are eligible to become citizens, but they just choose not to. They just want to be immigrants that are longtime you know, people in the U.S. They get all the benefits, and we have a cost that we bear for them, but they just don't want to be citizens. Okay then I want 5% from you. Why? Because I can. You can go back to your home country, you can stay here and pay 5%, or you can become a citizen, and therefore stop paying 5%. Um, Social Security, I'd uncap it. All right, right now 118000 I'd uncap it and pay it all the way up. So again, the rich would pay 36%, but they'd also pay the additional 3 and change. Let's say it's 3 Three and a quarter, three seven five. I forget what the number is, but they pay that all the way up. Eliminate the AMT, the alternative minimum tax. Um, that's a give back for the higher incomes. Um, I would redefine charity, not for profit foundations, um, any of the tier it or eliminate in general, but definitely revamp who qualifies. Territorial it needs to be redefined. Um, have a value added tax or border tax to protect us against cheap goods being dumped here. Um, and mandate a 10% value-added tax on energy exports. Um, again, the proceeds should be done, dumped right into reducing national debt because that's not money that we already have. Any extra money we can get has got to attack that big beast of 19.5 or $20 trillion and climbing. So those are just general twists I would make. So I'm going to shift to foreign policy. I'm going to do it real fast. Foreign policy has a really uh, difficult position right now. I want you to think about this laundry list of of countries I'm about to rattle off. The Ukraine was, I will say, attacked by Russia and was never, ever dealt with by this administration, still unresolved today that they occupy Ukraine. North Korea is always a hot spot. China in the South uh, China Sea has been breaking international um, law, but no one's addressed it. Turkey, one of our chief strategic locations in the Middle East, 
is going on fire and out of control. We're about to lose relationships there. Philippines is a major issue for us right now. I want, I want you to think about some of this stuff. All these countries all across the planet, forget about Syria and the Middle East that are on fire. We have so many international issues going on right now. And we have India and Pakistan, you know, which are starting to get a little squirrely. So let me get this right. On day one, you need to go resolve these things and start to resolve these things. You better have a talented team at that State Department level. But you also have another ripple in the pond. Ready? We have a much reduced military and a very weak military by design of current administration. And you have a very soft foreign policy currently that doesn't set the table for this. So there's going to be a really big shock to the foreign policy system because they don't know that America should be strong. A lot of people right now think that a weak America, a limp foreign policy by the U.S. is quote-unquote normal. It's not normal. Not when you're the number one consumer nation in the world. You are the only superpower on the planet, and you are the number one defender of most of the countries on the planet. No. And that's the one benefit I think that Trump brings is he has a bravado, a swag, a, an American self-assurance piece to him that that's where he's going to go. Okay, we're America, and you need to play by the rules. So get a grip and back off. Here's the funny part. You ready? Let's go to Trey just for a split second. He's going to renegotiate deals. He was banging the drum on this. Obama had eight years and never mentioned it. Trump campaigns on this, and since the election, in about two weeks, a little less, China, Canada, and Mexico have already said we'd be willing to talk to you, you know, and renegotiate. I want you to think about that. The man isn't even president yet, and he's already done more than the current president did in eight years. Why? Because he saw it, he addressed it, they believed him, and they responded. You know what they call that? It's called leadership. What a refreshing change. Leadership. I want you to think about that word. Leadership is talking the talk and then walking the walk. And I say this for a reason. The first hundred days for then-President Trump will be critical to showing us what's in his heart and what's in his soul as a leader for us, for the greatest country on the planet you are about to see what's in his heart and soul. How will he make our world better? How will he bring us back to having that American swag, that exceptionalism? We have the greatest country, and there's nothing wrong with that. We can believe that. We can act like that. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean you rub everybody's nose in it. Why do you think people want to move here? Because we're horrible? Of course we're the best. And we should always expect to be that. It's like being on a winning football team. You know what you do, right? You expect to win. When you lose, you know what happens? You get pissy. Why? Because you don't like losing. Why? Because you're winners. 
So you fix it, you move on, you go win again. Winners don't like to lose. And I got a tip for you. If you're an American, you're a winner by default. You should want a safe country. You should want a, you should want a rocking economy. You should want everyone to benefit. You should want equality. You should want fairness. And you certainly should want a president who's going to lead and represent you well and represent all of you well. And that's the difference. And that's the piece that I'm really hoping and praying he shows us. I want him to keep his promise and address the inner city poverty situation. How telling would that be that this quote-unquote, air quotes, racist of a president, okay, fixes the inner city poverty for all the minorities when the first and only black president ever for our country ignored it on his watch? How would you explain that if you wanted to make him look bad? You couldn't. And that's not why you should do it. You should do it because it's the right thing. And I hope that's all he ever shows us in his presidency. Time will tell. But first up, tax reform and foreign policy. Make those tweaks. Make great decisions with your appointments. Choose wisely. And for all of America, can you lighten up? It's an election. I mean, if Hillary was, you know, elected, you wouldn't flip out? Of course. Come on. Relax. He's the president-elect. Give him a chance, let him do his job, and then judge him. This is John Jensen with FixTheNation.com. Thank you so much. God bless. Have a great night and a great week.